This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 351, Asteroid Adventures. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Great. Welcome back to the 2014-2015 season of Astronomy Cast. And isn't this... So this is 2014, so this is our eighth season we're starting. Yeah. Eight years of Astronomy Cast coming at you. There, there are people that have started college and gotten their master's degrees while we've been doing this. <laughs> totally. I would love, I would love to hear, hear some stories. Oh, you should totally email us. <laughs> yes, if, actually, if, that, that's an awesome I, idea. If, if Astronomy Cast has somehow influenced your educational career and you started early on and you've been you know proceeding through it let us know email us at info at astronomycast.com we'd love to hear it so if you're hearing this hopefully you will have already heard our live dragon con episode which will have gone out in the feed at some point in the last few days so i hope you enjoyed that and uh that is a taste of things to come all right let's get going so astronomy cast 2014 2015 season begins with Rosetta's arrival at Comet 67P, Churi Guri, I would like to see a comet <laughs> up close and personal. What will it take to explore, exploit, and enjoy the asteroids and comets hurtling around our solar system? And how does science fiction have it all wrong? This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So, Pamela, um, you know, we're choosing this episode because, holy moly, we're about to land a spacecraft on a freaking comet. Yes. And, and what I love is for the past year, I've been hearing people from the Rosetta mission go, no, we're not landing. We are, are harpooning. We are docking. We are not landing. There's not enough gravity to land. And today, through the entire Rosetta session at the European Planetary Sciences Conference, which is where I'm at, all day I heard people saying, we're landing on, on and because it's an impossible to pronounce comet, they said, we're landing on the comet, and all of their slides just said CG67P. It was kind of yep. awesome. Yeah. So the, the Churi Guri, this is, this is from Emily Lakdawalla. So, you know, she works for the Planetary Society, one of the most knowledgeable people in, uh, you know, planetary uh, exploration. So that's her name for it. I love it. That's what we're using from here on out. Churi Guri. The, the, the actual name, as near as I can pronounce it, is uh, Churyumov Gerasnyenko. 
Ooh, your Russian is good. Um, okay, so so let's talk a bit about. So the, the goal with this episode really is to talk about about what does it take to reach these asteroids, to orbit these asteroids, to find you know to be able to actually set down on these on these asteroids and comets. And, and when and, he says asteroid, yeah. he means small bodies, including comets. Yes, asteroids and comets. Yes. All right, so let's sort of let's sort of like set the stage then uh, about where these objects are in the solar system and and what what's involved to actually reach them. So, so the things that we're going after in general are going to be somewhere out beyond Mars. So they're kind of a pain to get to. When I say beyond Mars, they could be a lot beyond Mars. The Rosetta spacecraft had to put itself into a rather severe elliptical orbit in order to match the orbit of the comet that it's going to be harpooning and putting a lander onto. So you're going out far enough that you can still use solar panels, but if you do, you have to power yourself down a lot. You're going out far enough that uh, ice has become an issue. Staying warm is always an issue. Um, and time is the real annoyance because you're waiting 10 years, 11 years longer to get your orbit correct to be able to do what you're doing if orbiting and landing is your goal. Right. And so uh, what are the main missions that have been part of this? I mean, um, there was the mission to Eros mm-hmm. with Near, right? So, There's... so I I have notes. Um... Oh, good. <laughs> we don't have to pull them out of my memory. No, 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 no. That that's just mean. So, so we've had Chang E went within five kilometers of a little tiny cute asteroid. Um, I'm just going over the ones that got really cute. Um, uh, not cute, really close. They're cute as well, but really yeah. close. We had Only Hayabasa. the close missions, please. Yes. We had Hayabasa uh, actually returned, is in the process of returning a sample from Itakawa. Uh, we had Deep Space 1 got within 26 kilometers of Comet Borelli. Rosetta did a flyby of Comet Steins at 800 kilometers near Shoemaker, landed on Eros, and took all sorts of awesome images from 35 kilometers away. But for asteroids in general, most of the images have come from 1,000 kilometers or further away. And when we start looking at comets, um, spacecraft are even less willing to get close in. So with the early missions that we're trying to get in close to Halley, we were looking at Guiado got within about 600 kilometers. And... um, that's not that great compared to, well, Rosetta is going to be orbiting at about 30 kilometers up and then working itself down to a 10-kilometer orbit. And then we're looking at Stardust, got within 240 kilometers of Veal to 2. And Temple 1 was approached by Stardust at 181 kilometers. So comets are not something you usually get nearly as close to and this is probably because a lot of these missions were trying to stay outside of the blast zone comets are volatile they periodically release all sorts of different things my my favorite comment of the day was uh looking at epoxy results of hartley 2 and hartley 2 is a comet that um they call it a bilobate nuclei it means that it's kind of barbell shaped and it has a waist or a neck, whatever you want to call it, around its middle. And 
that middle skinny section gives off water vapor and the far end of the, the tail part of this comet, I was waiting for one of the scientists to say derriere or something less appropriate, but the tail end of this comet was giving off CO2. Um, so you have these really neat structures that are giving off jets of different volatile materials. And getting hit by a jet is going to screw up your orbit. And you have to have enough fuel on board to compensate for that. And a lot of these missions aren't carrying enough fuel. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, you've got these, as you said, you've got these, uh, the material that's streaming off the comet that the spacecraft is going to have to deal with. You've got the irregular shape and spin of the object that the spacecraft is going to have to deal with. I mean, you can imagine the, you know, one of these big asteroids tumbling and turning and trying to land. You've got to match yeah. this this strange rotation that the asteroid's doing with you your spacecraft. You have a 12.4-hour rotation period of Churiguri is what we're calling it, Churigura. <laughs> 67P, yeah, Churiguri. So you have a 12.4-hour rotation period of an object that is currently being described as a bilobate duck. And over and over, everyone was referring to it as a duck because if you rotate it, it does indeed look like a rubber ducky. It's mm. two non-aligned objects that are connected by a skinny neck of material. The entire thing is, is not that many kilometers across. You don't really have gravity that's all that much to speak of. It's just barely enough to allow them to orbit. And, and so now you're trying to maneuver in to land on a rotating duck. Yeah. Yeah. Not easy. <laughs> not easy. Which is spraying no. material at you. Yes. So it's, it's not an it's easy, neck it's not is an easy giving job. off a lot of the jets. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, and I guess the other part of the problem is that the gravity is so low that any maneuvers that you make will push you like it must be super hard to get captured by the very weak gravity it's almost yes. non-existent well and with with missions like dawn which approached Ceres, not Ceres, it's on its way to Ceres. missions like dawn which uh snuck up on vesta what you essentially do is you first match the object's orbit as it goes around the sun and as you're matching the orbit you slowly just basically puff yourself into an orbit that is spiraling around that object as you co-orbit around the sun. Yeah, it, you're, you're going to have to play some Kerbal Space Program to to really know how to do this maneuver. I highly recommend it. They, they actually have like full-on simulators where, um, as, as it was described by one of the women on the Dawn mission, uh, she goes into a very, very cold room where they have a secondary version of the spacecraft plug all over the maneuvers into this cold storage version of the spacecraft, look to see what happens, and then compare the outputs to what was expected. Oh, that's really cool. Literally. Um, okay, so let's so let's uh, let's specifically then talk about Rosetta because at the time that we're you know we don't normally do this, but at the time that we're recording, Rosetta you know is orbiting sixty seven p. It's about to send the Philae lander down, the Philae harpooner down. Um, so how is this going to how how is this going to work? 
Right now, they're in the process of narrowing it down from five landing sites, two on the head of the duck and three on the body of the duck. Um, they're trying to narrow it down to one landing site and one backup landing site that will be announced on September 15th. So uh, right after this episode goes live, um, they're going to then say specifically which one of the primary and secondary sites it is uh, in October. And then in November, they're going to send that little lander down. And one of the big issues that they're running into is when you're trying to land on a moving object, you, you end up with error ellipses. Uh, we see the exact same thing when we land on Mars with the various rovers. There's this area on the surface that is defined by how well they think they can land um, based on wind in the atmosphere, rotation of the planet, and all these other factors. Well, Chirigira doesn't have an atmosphere to worry about, but it has these jets and its gravity isn't exactly mapped out perfectly, and so you still end up with an error ellipse because it's a rotating object, so it's an ellipse, not a circle. The ellipse is one kilometer in diameter. It's called a 500 meter error ellipse or landing ellipse, and they haven't found any flat areas that are that big. So landing is actually a much more difficult process than they thought it was going to be. They, they are also stuck by the fact that they can't actually get in at the neck, for instance, because how do you maneuver in there? They just don't have enough uh, fuel on the lander. There's issues of, well, if you're orbiting this way, you can't actually get to all parts of a spinning object. So there's a ton of constraints in terms of just the dynamics of the system and what orbital mechanics and the amount of fuel, they re refer to it as the amount of change in velocity that you have on your lander and your spacecraft. So you take into account what you can do, you then start looking for sites that are big and smooth, get a little sad because you can't find them, start looking for things that at least have the surface parallel to gravity, because one of the other problems they're having is this is a silly looking object that is sloped in all sorts of crazy directions with respect to that insane gravitational potential because it's rubber duck shaped. So let's, you know, so we, it's hard. Yes. And they're going to figure it out and they're going to. And so in the case of Rosetta, it's going to take this, this harpoon on the Philae lander. It's going to jab it into the comet and then it's going to reel itself in and try and land. Yeah. And, and this is another one of those things that they don't take into account in movies like Armageddon. One of the things, one of the many things that had me kind of screaming at the television set during the few excerpts of Armageddon that people who love me still let me see. Um, they, they land on this comet that is nominally kilometers across and they're walking around it was a thousand kilometers across it was as big as texas it's still not going to have that much surface gravity yeah well and even in like deep impact it was only more like 10 kilometers right you wouldn't and that was a comet and you wouldn't yeah. be able to yeah stand on it yeah. so so you have this super low gravity surface and if you try and just gravitationally land on it while it's spinning past you, uh, it gets tricky. So by harpooning it, it guarantees that you match that rotational velocity. 
and you essentially reel yourself in and suddenly it makes the dynamics a little bit less scary to deal with. Yeah, I mean, we had uh, a uh, ad hoc landing with Near when it landed yeah, on Eros, right? It's sort of awesome. Yeah, I know, I know. And it sort of slowly made its way closer and closer and closer and then just <laughs> landed um, and, uh, and survived. Yeah. Briefly. And was able to provide data. But hopefully the Philae landers can do a better job. So let's talk about the science then. So what kind of science are astronomers looking at, both in the, the landings they did with with um, on Eros and the landing, the Philae lander and future missions? What, what unsolved questions they're trying to get to the bottom of? Well, at, at the end of the day, asteroids and comets are leftover material from the formation of our solar system. They haven't been processed through all of the different things that happen on planets like Earth that cause you to have silver mines in one place and uranium and others, all of this differentiation processes that we have and other large objects have, comets and small asteroids don't have the same way. So when you get up and explore these things, it gives you a chance with the sample return missions, with the spectrometers, with all of the instrumentation, to start to get at a sense of what were the original ingredients that made up our solar system before they got processed by all of the things that happen when you have chemistry happening on the body. Uh, here on Earth, we end up with all sorts of complex things that weren't formed in the solar system, but were formed here because we have weather, because we have so much gravity, and because we have tectonics. Now, we find that objects like Vesta actually are differentiated. We didn't know that, and that's kind of cool. And the Dawn mission, it, it's looking at bigger things. It's looking at Vesta and Ceres. Here, it's looking at two large, almost planets that are on either side of the solar system's ice belt. So, so here, you're looking at things that formed on either edge of a very special line in our solar system's formation. But when we're looking at all of these smaller things, we're basically going, okay, what were the raw ingredients before we baked the solar system through planetary differentiation? What's cool with Rosetta is they're actually going in and they're looking for organics that formed naturally. Uh, they're, they're looking to see what is the mix of chemicals? What, what are all of the awesome things that happen when you look at the debris that comes from the outskirts of the solar system instead of the outskirts on the inner part of the solar system. Right, and 67P is a, is a long or is a short period comet, right? So it's one that's been orbiting within the inner, you know, relatively inner solar system for billions of years. And so it isn't fresh in the way that, right. for example, you know, some of the new ones, like the new Siding Springs one that's going to be going past Mars shortly is things like that. And so it's, it's going to be a different... Creature. I mean, that's man. That would be the dream, right? Land a lander on a comet, where you don't. That's come from the outer, from the Oort cloud, right? But but the problem with things coming in from the Oort cloud is you don't have enough years to match their orbit before they between when they would get detected out by Jupiter, if you're lucky, and when they come in towards the inner solar system. With this particular comet, it's not even coming all that far into the inner solar system. It's going to get in around three AU, um, and that's awesome. But that's not a sun grazer, and it, it's actually a whole lot safer for the spacecraft because it's not going to have huge amounts of activity like you would if you got too close to the sun. But if you're looking at one of those 
outer comets coming in, you're not going to get a super precise orbit. You're going to basically be throwing rocks at a moving target, and you don't have enough years to throw that rock. So yeah, it's awesome. It's a dream, but don't know how you do it at this point. We just don't have yeah. the ability to get things going fast enough. I believe that's why I said, man, wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> <laughs> that's why i did my empty speculation because because you know beyond that right being able to get up close and study one of those comets is important yeah. because we need to understand what their you know what their constituency is what are they made of how dense are they how do they behave because as we've as as we watch with deep impact the the goal the would be to eventually be able to move shift adjust harvest and, from well, these comets and and so to actually I'm not sure be we're going to harvest a comet they're like their water and CO2 we got those um, but but part of the challenge with these like if we can't even get to one of these comets to be able to figure out how to move them or or even study them how are we going to be able to move them and protect the earth from these if they're going to eventually impact us so anyway that's a whole other rabbit hole we don't need to go too deep down into that um so, so a, a rabbit hole that you you probably aren't thinking about, though, that makes these things interesting in a different way is when the solar system formed, you ended up with a different mix of stuff at different distances from the sun. This is how we know that the Earth and the moon came out of the same lump of stuff, is we have the same different isotopic ratios. Mars is made up of a different ratio of stuff. This is how we're able to identify Mars meteorites when they land on Earth. This is how we're able to say these meteorites all came from the same parent asteroid. As we look at things that came from different distances from the Sun when they formed, we're getting a different sampling of that original solar nebula. So objects that come from the Kuiper belt for their origins are going to have a different composition than objects that came out from the Oort cloud. So beyond the whole protecting Earth, which isn't a way to justify spacecraft with Congress, um, the whole let's get a teaspoonful of the outer solar system, that's, that's basic science, basic research. You can at least usually get a small mission out of that sort of an idea. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things as well, when I look at the pictures of, of 67P. Uh, the giant is- duck. The flying duck, the it looks like a little eagle, an eaglet to me, um, is is how much it looks like an asteroid. Like it doesn't look like a comet. It doesn't have jets that are visible with the contrast that allows you to see the surface. The, this is one of those things that that is really frustrating. Is it does have jets. It does have a mission right now. It doesn't have a giant awesome tail. It doesn't have a big fuzzy coma, but it it is giving off stuff. But you can only see that stuff if you play with the contrast to the point that the surface of the comet is completely saturated. So when you turn down the contrast so that you're making out the surface features, you use all, you lose all of the jets that make it look like your quintessential comet. Now, at the same time, I wouldn't say it looks like an asteroid because the sucker isn't all cratered. doesn't have craters. Mm-hmm. It, it also... It's much more jagged with many more sharp edges. And asteroids in general are a lot more rounded in their appearance and lack these sudden plateaus and chasms that you see with the ice fractures all over this object. It looks like, and I, I don't know if you get that this there, 
but here in Canada, when we go up to the mountain, uh, we have these great big, um, like it snows tons in the wintertime on the mountain because it rains yeah. here all winter long. And so we get this almost a channel that you have to drive through on your way up the mountain where it can be 10 meters of snow that you're driving right. up through. And so you've got snow banks on both sides, but then but then the actual ground is dirt and mud and muck and the cars are driving through it and they're spraying up this dirt and it's yeah. covering all this snow that looks like, you know, looks like snow, but it's sort of half melted and iced and whatever. And then it's all covered in dirt. And it's, yeah. it is like gray, looks like, like totally someone looks just painted. like that. Yeah, someone just painted snow with mud. And the, that's what it looks like to me. What One of the awesome things that happens is with a lot of organic compounds that form naturally, when you expose them to ultraviolet light, which the sun has, uh, they blacken over time. This This is one of the awesome things that creates dirty snowballs out of really old comets. And there's actually a few objects that have been misidentified as asteroids because they're very old comets that have used up the most volatile parts or have caked over the most volatile parts. So as they pass around the sun, they're just going, okay, I'm covered in organics. I might have a little jet over here. But in general, they're just coated in dark sludge. And yeah. this is a sludgy object still. It'll shine up as it gets a little closer to the sun. And that'll be really interesting, right? Which is... And I think that's one of those scientific questions is what exactly happens as it warms up, as it gets to the point that these jets start to appear and start to erupt out of the surface of the comet. And wouldn't it be amazing for the for the lander to be close to one of these jets? And that's not the plan. under one of the jets, but, you know, not a, not on the business side of one of these, although it probably won't be too much of a problem for it. Like, it's not going to be blasting jets. It's going to yeah, be... Well. What's it going to be, I guess? Well, I mean, so, so the thing to think about is if you've ever watched dry ice, it gives off like nice, pretty uh, clouds of material. These get used to create fog when you don't have a fog machine. But if you blast, and I don't recommend this, if you blast that dry ice with a creme brulee torch, you'll get a a, a jet of material trying to escape as it rapidly sublimates and and that rapid sublimation is is the same thing as a jet forming and what you end up with on comets is most of the surface is sludged over but as the surface melts you end up revealing a pocket of more pure material that just jets and that's kind of volatile now this probably won't happen, but there's the minuscule chance that they'll harpoon into something that just decides to jet back off, and that would be a bad day. But what they're hoping to do is actually land near activity, but not on an active mm -hmm. region. But it's hard to know when you're looking down, when you're mapping. I guess this is part of the landing process, is they're trying to guess and go, which parts will probably not have jets and, and this is where they use spectroscopy to try and understand what are the different things in different parts of the surface. Uh, they're trying to land near organic materials. They're trying to land near an active region. They have a ton of constraints. I do not envy the, the group of people who are choosing that final landing site. Yeah, but yeah. they want to do all the things you want to do, so you'll be happy. Yeah, no, it's, it's just an amazing mission. So then, uh, you know, before we wrap this up, I would love to know... 
what would be sort of the next dream mission if you could sit down and, and hammer out the requirements of another mission that would interact with a small body uh, in a you know, minor body in the solar system, what would, what would you want your mission to do? So if I was looking at an ultra low cost mission, I'd want to take one of the earth crossing asteroids that gets fairly close, but not too close and actually try out. So what happens if we paint that sucker? Um, that's just a cool idea. And if you paint one and then you can send the spacecraft off to do more science, um, I, I don't know how you would paint it at this point, but mm. I know there's people that have worked to figure it out. And the idea of painting an asteroid just makes my heart giggle. Um, if, if it was a more expensive mission that allowed, uh, if, if the sky was the limit on cost, I want it to is. start to... <laughs> Allow me to write you a blank check. I, I, I would love to be able to start doing, uh, no matter... If they're only a few feet deep, I'd love to start doing core samples instead of just scraping off a small level. Just imagine being able to dig even 10 feet into one of these objects and see how thick is the crust, see what is the diversity, and start doing those core samples. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard, here, but here on Earth, core samples tell us so much about everything. We use uh, silt samples from the bottom of lakes to tell us about the plants in the region. We use core samples in Antarctica to look back at the the levels of carbon dioxide and the constituents of the atmosphere. We use rock samples to look back at the layering and the we find out the mass extinctions. So same thing. You dig in and produce a core sample on one of these comets or asteroids. Comet might be easier. Um, you're gonna get the history of the solar system. And, and where it starts to get problematic is that would be a hugely energy intensive mission and it would need to be big and sturdy and able to withstand all sorts of shaking and it starts to become an engineering problem that we're not quite there yet. It should be covered by my blank check. Don't worry about it. <laughs> all right. Well, Pamela, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info@astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+ every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.